Welcome, everyone, to the Network Age. I am Bidrill Ritson, joined by my handsome co-host, Habsol Rigner. Hello, everyone. And uh, today, there actually is a slight change that we should tell you about. We are sorry to say that our good friend, Nilrun Mardux, has taken a bit of a step back from the show to focus on some of his own personal projects. Of course, we really appreciate everything he has done for the show, and I'm sure that you have not um, heard the last of him. So we will keep our audience updated about everything that he is doing. And once again, we really appreciate all the work he's done for the Network Age. But on a happier note, today we will be joined by an absolutely unbelievable guest, Ryan Rossner, the Director of Longevity Research at MiniCircle. Now, this is a company dedicated to the research and development of reversible gene therapies. Yeah, in a moment, we'll hear from Ryan all about the unbelievable work at MiniCircle, in particular, their first trial therapies to improve longevity and intelligence. But first, we wanted to give a brief overview of the type of project MiniCircle is and how it fits into the network age. So obviously on the show, we're interested in the future of technology and, and things like that. And in particular, how technological development will influence the, the emergence of new types of social structures. You know, we pay attention to how those structures may transcend traditional boundaries, political, geographical, and institutional. We, we follow crypto not because we're interested in finance, but because we're interested in how a disruption of legacy financial systems can create new societal structures and, and shift the balance of power from the institution to the individual. So Mini Circle then represents not only a real scientific triumph, once again, we can't wait for our conversation with Ryan, but also a shift in how technology develops. After meeting with regulatory obstacles in the United States, MiniCircle established its lab in a special economic zone in Roatan, an island off the coast of Honduras, not so far from where President Bukele is experimenting with Bitcoin in El Salvador. MiniCircle shares the island with Prospera, a private charter city funded by, among others, Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen, which is free to experiment with new forms of governance and regulation. While the Honduran government has rolled back some protections offered by the Special Economic Zones, also known as ZEDES, Z-E-D-E-S, MiniCircle points towards a new future where people can organize around shared principles, ideals, and ambitions, and maybe become superhuman while doing it. Is that a good thing? Well, we'll let you be the judge. And now, our conversation with Ryan Rossner. Welcome back, and we are now joined by Ryan Rossner, the Director of Longevity Research at MiniCircle, and Ryan has about as impressive and long a resume as anyone we've had on the show, former NFL player, uh, has a PhD in the molecular mechanisms of aging, a former contractor for DARPA. Wow, uh, very impressive, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're really excited, and um, you know, to get started for uh, for our listeners who have never uh, seen Ryan, he's he's very he's very handsome, square jaw, strong, uh, which which raises the question: Ryan, are you a genetically enhanced super soldier? Um, yes to the first two parts, super soldier. <laughs> not sure, but uh, definitely genetically enhanced. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe that's next on mini circles list. Well, um, Ryan, I we're gonna dive into everything, all the work that you guys have been doing in mini circle, and it's really impressive and fascinating. But I think maybe best to start is by telling us a little bit about your journey. You've done so many different things, and curious how you ended up like on going from professional football to the cutting edge of uh, gene research. Yeah, totally. Um... I'll, I'll give you the really short version. Like um, when I was four, I watched my mom go through cancer and cancer treatment. Um, that really stuck with me. I studied philosophy in college to try and answer existential questions like why do people suffer like that? Um, philosophy didn't really answer those questions. Uh, at the same time, I was, <laughs> yeah, I, I was pursuing the NFL because I was just like kind of sick of school and I wanted to be a pro athlete and retire young. Um, didn't. I got signed to contracts, didn't get rich enough to retire, um, just didn't get rich in the NFL. Um, but I got exposed to popular science books. Um, you know, Ray Kurzweil's Singularity is Near was a big one for me. And I also uh, experimented with psychedelics at that time. And the two influences kind of showed me the flip side of that experience with my mom. Like, oh my gosh, there's so much potential for humanity. So after I finished my degree post-football, I moved to Seattle uh, slowly work toward a PhD in the molecular mechanisms of aging. And that's how I landed here. Yeah. I wanted to, I just wanted to comment on the Ray Kurzweil thing because that's a book that we have in common. That was like very, very sort of influential. I think for a young man around the early two thousands, because yeah. I actually, I, I don't know if you remember this, but, um, Yudkowsky's, um, singularity Institute was extant at the time, which became, I think, uh, Miri and I used to write for them, but uh, I wrote, I wrote, I read uh, Kurzweil's book probably maybe around the same time that you did, like basically when it came out. Yeah. And the lessons I remember from that were that technology, so people have it in their mind that, that it's a linear progression, but in fact, what's happening is actually an exponential, you know, growth of, of, of technological progress and that. He he said that one of the the takeaways from that was that you could potentially, in our lifetimes, we could be seeing like the first person to live to the to a thousand years old or something like that, which sounded much more unbelievable yeah. in the early two thousands than it does now. Maybe. What do you? Yeah. Do, do you think it sounds more believable in twenty twenty three than it did when you read Kurzweil? I mean, there's more evidence that it's possible now. As a scientist, I really strive to stay away from believing anything. Um, <laughs> and that, that includes like statements about the future, like something is impossible or it's definitely going to happen. But yeah, I mean, I would say theoretically it's, it's possible. And we, we've learned a lot about how aging works and we've developed a lot of therapies. So uh, yeah, it's not, it's not completely off the wall. If you ran me through the lab, could you tell me the day I'm going to die? Um. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe if I... He, he doesn't know how many enemies you have. Yeah. 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 Can you I, test for, for my susceptibility to assassination? Very high, yeah. I would say. We don't have a blood test for that yet, but um, we do have some pretty awesome blood-based measures of like, you know, estimates of your biological age versus your chronological age. Um, that's kind of one of the cutting edge things that's new, but like offering exciting information. And uh, I mean, we're going to get to all this, but does, are these estimates of your biological age, does most of that come from like 
you know, just your genetic stuff that is innate to you? Or does a, does a rowdy, hard living life um, really show up in these types of tests that you're doing? That's a great question. I think the the estimate I've heard is maybe like 30% genetics and like 70% lifestyle and environment. And there, there's outliers on both those. Like some people are dealt a really bad hand genetically. And you can basically, with a bad enough lifestyle, you can cancel out any good genes you have, basically. Um, yeah. Personal project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I will say that it's it's delightful to go to like, go see the, the, the girls that I graduated high school with who would have nothing to do with me back then and just, you know, like mog them with my, my good slow aging means, you know, because I'm aging 42. very well. I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm 42 now and I, I don't look 42, but you know, some yeah, people 41 40, at most. Thanks man. <laughs> but you know, some people who are 42 look 60. Uh, yeah. And so, Yeah. It's it's a real joy to go back to your hometown and see the sixty year old, forty forty year olds. This is the real reason you just uh, you went home like a couple weeks ago, <laughs> just to be mean to yeah. Girls. First time first time home in ten years, and I just wanted to go you know see some of the girls who turned me down for prom. You know. <laughs> well, uh, Ryan, I think that this you know might be a good chance to just sort of uh, you know to put on your your PhD hat, your professor hat, and lead us through longevity 101 right because you know i i'll i'll speak for both of us and say that we're both idiots but you're very smart and i think that you know this is a huge topic so like how about um you help us orient ourselves in this yeah i'd love to research definitely so longevity research modern longevity research kind of started in 1935 so like about 100 years ago they basically kind of starved some lab rats and they extended their maximum lifespan Nobody thought this was possible and nobody knew how it worked. So for 50 years, the field was like, how does that work? And remember, in 1935, we wouldn't even know the structure of DNA for another 20 years. So there were no, there weren't the same molecular tools. From 1993 through 2005, there were a series of genetic experiments using model organisms like yeast, worms, flies, and mice. And we basically screened pretty much every gene in their genomes to figure out how fasting or dietary restriction extend the lifespan. Kind of this holy trinity emerged from that. That's my term. It's not a field term. Like, <laughs> so basically fasting turns down insulin, turns down mTOR, and turns up AMP-K. So that was like a massive breakthrough th- for the field. In parallel, there, was, there were developments like understanding telomeres and senescent cells and epigenetics. And around 2013, 2014, the field, which had long struggled to separate itself from fringe elements and get mainstream traction, kind of got that traction with a major article called Hallmarks of Aging, uh, a multi-billion dollar investment from Google forming Calico, and a conversation with the FDA about actually targeting aging. Since then, the field has continued to steadily expand and gain mainstream traction. Uh, so that's kind of where we are today. And so uh, let me ask you, I've heard so much about, um, you know, calorie restriction as, as something that is good for longevity yep. is how, how much should I believe this? Like if I'm a, a healthy person who exercises, but, you know, consumes a ton of food, uh, yep. should I be, am I going to die? Am I like, I, well, I will die, but like, like, does, does it matter 
that I'm fit and active, uh, does that not negate the the problems that I eat too goddamn much? It, it, it negates. So what I'm telling you is like my working conclusion. Um, exercise doesn't give you all the benefits of fasting. So what I usually suggest to people is try to incorporate some form of fasting into your life regularly. And that's intentionally big. So like could be weekly, could be monthly, could be a yearly 72 hour water fast. Basically, I mean, exercise is maybe the best thing for longevity, but when you do fasts, especially longer fasts, it kicks in kind of like cellular clean out and maintenance uh, mechanisms that aren't really fully activated by exercise. This is interesting because we, we're, we're calorie rich now and, and our ancestors were less calorie rich, yes. living in less calorie rich environments. And yeah. yet you see that like every, basically every religion in the world implemented fasting. I mean, Absolutely. Catholics, Catholics fast, Buddhists fast. And it's, Absolutely. it's sort of the Jews, uh, baby. Uh, okay. Love, there you go. Sorry. I forgot about you. I forgot about the tribe. Yeah, um, dude, don't, don't <laughs> leave us behind. Yeah. So, so, uh, it's, it's kind of maybe, uh, you know, like an, a new unhealthy thing that we do that we yeah. eat so many calories and never fast. Yeah. I, I would, I would, I, I would reach back even further than our human ancestors. I mean, life on earth is like approximately 4 billion years old and basically almost every species has evolved in a non in an environment that's not constant abundance. So these genetic programs that respond to periods of uh, deprivation are extremely ancient. Um, that's why we're able to use yeast, worms, flies in the lab, because at the cellular and genetic level, at the biochemical level, they respond to fasting using basically the same genetically encoded programs that even predate animals. There's one more thing I want to ask about that. As I, I, I seem to re recall that uh, Aubrey de Grey used to do that. And uh, maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but he, he seems to believe that it's not that, not that wildly useful anymore. You know anything about that? I, I don't know, uh, you know, on what data Aubrey's basing his personal conclusion. I think, you know, there are differing assessments of different types of fasting and how solid the data is uh, towards humans. I think for me, like it's a pretty safe bet to do some kind of non-hardcore but regular fasting. Like I feel so comfortable. What, maybe what I should ask is what do you do? Yeah. So usually um, like on the weekdays, I'm in performance mode at work. So I eat like healthy but pretty freely. I use the weekend as an opportunity to fast. So like the weekend I'll do anything from, you know, intermittent fasting Saturday and Sunday to sometimes I'll go Friday night to Monday morning with zero calories. Um, and then once or twice a year, usually on a holiday, I'll like drive out to the desert and try to push my PR in terms of a water fast. So I'll do like a three to five day water fast out in the desert and meditate a bunch. And that's kind of like, that's like where I land. You're a pretty fit guy that you worry about like muscle wasting. You know, if I, if I look at like all my longevity categories, my fat free mass index, my bone density are like absolutely maxed out. 
Um, mine. <laughs> That's sick, man. Congrats. Yeah, I mean, like, so for me, I'm not worried at all about losing muscle or strength. Um, I think for a person who's in their 40s who's never like done powerlifting before, they might have to strike a more careful balance. But like, you know, that that's where my balance is. I, I don't I don't need to worry about that personally. Okay, that, that from, one hit that one hit close to home. A person in their forties <laughs> who's never how's your done how's power your powerlifting? Has uh, yeah, uh, currently training to try to get back in marine shape. Yeah, um, sweet. But the the powerlifting isn't there yet. Maybe you got to pivot. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Power, uh, I, I I do pull ups. Pull ups uh, yeah. are as long as you, as long as you do it powerfully. Yeah, um, I guess so. Like this is maybe aside um, from the longevity stuff, but when you do the fasting, how does it affect you mentally? Like, do you like a lot of people report clarity and sometimes even increased energy? Though I imagine once you start getting in the three to five day range, things start getting pretty wacky. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think clarity is one of the most commonly reported things that I've heard anecdotally. I experience clarity when I do intermittent fasting. Um, longer fasts, I'd say there's more of a, what's the word? Like a, oh, it comes in waves, like waves of tiredness, waves of clarity and energy. It's really important to note that people who are experienced at fasting usually have a bag of tricks. And that often involves like, you know, making sure to consume electrolytes, maybe consuming a lot of caffeine, just little things to like prevent the, some of the worse, worse, uh, feelings. What's the mechanism like in their shorter fast? What's the mechanism as far as you know, of why you get increased clarity from like, say a two day fast? Yeah, I would guess the short answer is scientifically. I'm not, I don't know, but I think it would probably be, you know, maybe if your gut is not diverting resources for digestion, they could be freed up elsewhere. But also I think your body is probably like, hey, I don't have food, like time to hunt or time to forage. So mm. let's turn up adrenaline or dopamine or something like that. Right on. Do you do you hunt? Hunt? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, not, not really. I've hunted a couple of times. I I'm, would like to do it, but it's just not something that's happened a lot for me. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm currently preparing to go on my first hunt later this year with my fiance's dad, who's like a real hardcore like montana guy you know like like bow hunter uh yeah. like super gnarly but we're, yeah. we're just gonna go uh bird hunting um and i've so i've been shooting the shotgun and trying to get okay at it he gave me a shotgun for christmas oh, this is all to say that i'm i'm uh nervous about it i'm nervous about um panicking and murdering someone instead of <laughs> a bird and i'm yeah. wondering <laughs> i'm wondering now if i should um if i if i should starve myself before you should probably fast yeah uh, yeah, I'd like get it, uh, really suit myself up and that'll make it, you know, make me hungrier for the pheasants. Yeah. You know, runners have a great saying, nothing new on race day. So <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> race involves a shotgun, like probably double down on that and test fasting before you have yeah. a gun. Yeah, definitely fast first. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, well, I want to, uh, backtrack a sec. You talked a little bit about the, um, biological markers that you are examining you mentioned um you know muscle mass you mentioned your incredibly big bones <laughs> your super strong bones that you've got working for you yeah um so i guess i'm curious maybe to move into some of the um 
the genetic work that you guys are doing and um, to hear a little bit about like, what are you actually measuring and what is the state of, of gene therapy these days? Yeah. I mean, gene therapy is still in its infancy in terms of development and availability for people who are healthy. What we're doing is, you know, kind of the new paradigm in medicine, which is closely related to the longevity or geroscience paradigm, is preventative medicine as opposed to reactive medicine. So uh, our first gene therapy is we deliver the follistatin gene, which is, you know, popularly discussed as a myostatin inhibitor, like in bodybuilding circles. Um, basically what it does is it improves body composition and strength, and it reverses epigenetic age as measured by current tests. The, the really important thing about our therapy is it's a plasmid delivery, which means it's necessarily transient, like it lasts about a year, and it's reversible. Uh, the, the primary delivery method for gene therapy is viral vectors, which is more permanent, much more expensive, irreversible, and can carry a pretty sizable risk in terms of initial immune response to the therapy. And then why is viral vector the, the standard? Is that just um, where research was more advanced to begin with? Or are there other advantages to this way? Or is it really everything is moving towards plasmid um, genetic therapies now? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, I was underinformed on this issue, but we were, me, Mac and Walter, they're the two founders of our company. We were on a call with a, an absolutely preeminent, you know, gene therapy expert. And he asked that question and his, his name is on a recent viral vector paper. Hmm. And basically what Mac and Walter said was, this plasmid delivery system was irrationally neglected because it was thought to be ineffective. Um, and just kind of whatever you would say, like uh, group think or like the crowd just shifted away from it uh, somewhat irrationally. Mac and Walter were sharp enough to notice that and develop it kind of quietly uh, over several years. So it's actually the opposite. The field is not at all shifting or shifted towards plasmids. We've just capitalized on an irrationally neglected delivery method. So your, your delivery method is, gives you several, I think, benefits you say over, over other companies. One is the cost is lower. Yeah. The, yeah. And, and you're also saying transiency is, is pretty important, right? It's uh, the, the maximum that the maximum that you can sort of screw up your life is like a year. Maybe I shouldn't phrase it in those terms. But. <laughs> no, I mean, like to be, to be real, like, I mean, you know, even something temporary could potentially have a long-term negative effect. We don't, there's nothing, there's no evidence for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think viral vector gene therapy, if you get it elective, like overseas, it's easily six figures. Um, our initial selling point is 25,000, which is maybe like an order of magnitude cheaper. And um, yeah, there's actually, I saw a commercial for this movie. I think it's in the Alien series. And there were like these engineer characters that had like created humanity. Like, I, I don't think humanity is in the engineer stage where we, where it's, we're ready to like permanently alter our genomes. I think this, it's a good initial step to have this like transient reversible 
uh, preventative gene therapy while we're still kind of getting our feet wet here. So can we talk then about like what these, uh, what the therapies are that you guys are offering and the price points uh, for each of them? Yeah. So right now we're, we have the folostatin gene therapy. Um, the price point is $25,000. Um, we completed a clinical trial um, in Honduras and the people who volunteered for the trial um, it's mostly Americans. Um, to be clear, we were not like experimenting on Hondurans unethically. Um, it's like like a, a an island of Doctor Moreau sort of uh, scenario. Yeah. You guys avoided that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, several people asked us that, like, "Oh, are you just like experimenting on the local population for full consent?" And the answer is absolutely not. Um, but yeah, so people who volunteered for the trial got it for free, basically. Um, they just had to pay for their travel. We have uh, two therapies in the works. Um, I can't give the gene names because, you know, business, but one of them is, so our current therapy, folostatin, is a body composition improvement plus epigenetic age reversal. The next one is an IQ boost plus very likely epigenetic age reversal. Both of those are kind of premium. Like they would both be probably at that $25,000 price point. We have a third therapy that's much simpler, like it's much more uh, modest benefits, but it's very specifically targeted for something that a lot of people struggle with. And that one could be anywhere from 10 to 100 times cheaper. So it could be 200 to $2,000. Um, and all these therapies last about a year. And um, I mean, something that's really interesting to me and persuasive is that it seems like your your company has is dog footing this right like you're you're eating you're using the product yourselves you mentioned that you have undergone um, gene therapies the founders of mini circle originally tested these gene therapies on themselves um you know bold uh and so i guess i'd love to hear about your personal experience with this like what benefits you have have noticed uh, both, you know, like just how do, how do you feel day to day, but also what these sort of epigenetic markers that you're you're looking at are. Yeah, totally. Um, so that was one of the things that appealed to me when I first met Mac a little over a year ago. Is he had done the therapy on himself, so that helped me to trust that it, they they thought it was safe. You know, um, kind of put their money where their mouth was. Um, I received a dose, my initial dose, uh, about a year ago, last October. And I was actually in a mode where I was doing a lot of fasting and a lot of cardio. Um, my finances actually got kind of tight around new year's and I started eating like a bunch of trail mix and stuff. And I was like getting a little fatter and I was like, you know what, if I'm going to be gaining weight and I'm on this fall statin gene therapy, I might as well start lifting again. And I actually put on about 15 pounds of lean mass in three months at age wow. 40, um, which was, which was a lot. So, you know, that's, that's my experience. Like, um, I feel really strong. Um, you know, my, my fat free mass is probably not probably it is the highest it's been since my NFL days. So, my Are you epigenetic- thinking of making an NFL comeback? Absolutely. One, I don't think I could, you know, having stated on the <laughs> record that I took gene therapy. Um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, but uh, two, hard no. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, my body is pretty banged up at this point. Um, 
have you have you seen uh this is a, a slight detour have you seen anything about the enhanced games do you know what i'm talking about no i haven't seen that there's uh some people trying to put together basically um uh like an olympics a, for genetically enhanced freaks or for people on steroids and for uh, and for things like that like and genetic enhancements too it's the idea that like all right why uh, why are we banning <laughs> doping let's see what actually if you you can do when you push the body to the limits um and you know obviously there's some like you know sticky issues in there with like steroids you know being very bad for you sometimes um but i i think that like i'm curious um i don't know like how far away are we from gene therapies therapies being I don't know, targeted enough to apply to things like specific sports or like, do you think that like this type of therapy would lead to real breakthroughs in what um, people are capable of like humanity writ large, or is it sort of more we're pushing people towards their own personal like extremes? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I I have a a couple answers to it. So first of all, um, the increase in fault. So statin is a protein that your body makes naturally. Most people's level is like, I want to say maybe five to 10 nanograms per milliliter. Our therapy pushes people to about 25 nanograms per milliliter on average. So that's a super physiological value. So I would say it is probably a super physiological result. It's not just pushing you to your best. It's pushing you beyond what you would naturally be capable of. I think that you know, given enough money and, you know, willpower from an athlete's team, like absolutely an athlete could be significantly enhanced via gene therapy. Like now I would be more surprised if that hadn't taken place somewhere on the international scene, you know, but I don't know specifics regarding doping. I I agree strongly with you. I think, you know, when I was young, um, I didn't think any athletes took steroids because that was the public narrative. Um, I got to college football and I realized like, oh, a lot of athletes take steroids. Everybody. Everybody's yeah. taking it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, literally like my, the guys who hosted me on my recruiting trip was like, oh yeah. Like, of course we're like steroids work super well. Like we're all on steroids. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and they were, you know, they were twice as big as me and I was like, okay. Uh, but this this lack of transparency and to be honest, kind of the like farcical nature of the, the cat and mouse game between, you know, doping detection and, and doped athletes, I think really it 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 leaves the public underinformed. Like an open dis- androgens like testosterone and its derivatives have risks. But you know, when I was in high school, kids were using them left and right. Nobody knew anything about them there's much, there's like safer ways to use them. And also I read, uh, was it Tyler Hamilton's book about the tour de France? And they were like, they had like a dude on a motorcycle with bags of human blood, like riding alongside yeah, the but, bike. But I have that, you know, what's that? I said, I have that too, but that's just for personal. <laughs> not, not related to the biking thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but these athletes, it becomes like a second full-time job to evade detection. Like, let them focus on the sport, you know, and like, let's have a more honest, transparent conversation about doping and risks associated with it. Like to me, if an adult wants to 
risk their health to, you know, run the equivalent of a four minute mile, like let them, there's much worse things a person can, people risk their health over much less constructive things like daily. So I feel pretty Mm -hmm. strongly about that. Yeah. Those are some of my answers there. I think transparency is really the the key word there because I think the the when something is disallowed and not talked about but still offers um, real benefits and there's incentives to using something, it makes it really difficult to approach safely, especially for for young people who may not understand the risks uh, associated with something. And I I think yeah. that they're um, you know. It probably isn't the best uh, possible future if every 15-year-old who thinks that they're going to be a professional athlete is on steroids. But if you have a more open dialogue about what that's That's the answer, though, dude. The the answer is, oh, yeah. Because, I mean, I'm a father and I've got two kids and I totally understand. Like, you know, like The Rock, right? He's obviously on 15 different things. Yeah, but he looks great. but claims that he isn't, right? And the reason that he claims that he isn't is because he's got a million, you know, seven-year-old fans yep. who, yeah. uh, you know, don't need to know that he's shooting up with five different things every day, right? Sure. And I, you know, I grew up, I, I'm a huge baseball fan. And like, I uh, I was a, you know, San Francisco Giants fan, Barry Bonds, baby. Uh, you know, his head grew three times over the course of a couple uh, of a couple years. And it, it, you know, I remember watching that as a kid and just being like, Oh, this this is this guy's a Superman. He this, this is right. impo- uh, this is impossible. And it turns out, oh yeah, <laughs> there was something there was something else going on there. But I, I think that like if you if you are able to have an open dialogue and maybe separate out these two categories, like I think something like the enhanced games. No, I makes think that's fine. Sense. By the way. Yeah, for, yeah. For the record, yeah. I think that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just about like how how are. How do we be safe? How do we, how do we keep people informed while also giving people the freedom to choose how they want to live their life? Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. a, like I was saying, I'm a I'm a father, and I've got I've got a kid, and I use testosterone because I'm 42, right? So it just makes sense for me. Do you? But, yeah. Is it is it nice? I've heard nice things about it. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like you don't notice you don't notice as you start to get older how much you've lost. It, it, because it, mm-hmm. it, it goes away so slowly that you don't realize, um, oh, my, my energy's taking a hit. Oh, my, my libido's taking a hit. Oh, my, you know, it, it, I just don't feel 25 anymore. And then when you take it, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember what 25 was like. So, um, yeah, but like I have to, so for one thing, I do it very safely at a very safe level. I'm not a, I'm not a power lifter. Uh, you know, I, I do a normal level yes. and then. And, and also when my kid asks, what's that in the box? I just say, oh, you know, it's some, some medicine that, you know, you say, that, oh, daddy's just injecting himself with heroin. Well, <laughs> That's all. I, I don't let my, I don't let my son see me inject myself with testosterone, but you know, if he sees the box, I'm like, yeah, it's just, it's just some, some medicine, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. So Ryan, the, I mean, hearing about these results are, are super interesting. Your personal results. What have the results been for these trial groups so far? Yeah. Um, so there's a few things to remark about our, our trial results. So we had 43 adults, um, men and women, age 23 through 88, with an average age of about 50. And quite a number of 
uh, people in the 75 to 85 age range. The, the biggest thing to note is that through at least six months of observation, there have been zero adverse effects reported related to therapy. So that's the, the most important thing is that it, you know, it's been safe so far. Um, we saw folostatin itself increase over twofold from, from an average of about nine uh, nanograms per milliliter to an average of about 25 nanograms per milliliter. And again, that's a super physiological increase. Our two main results have been an average increase in fat-free mass of about two pounds and about a 0.8% reduction in body fat. Those numbers are not mind-blowing, but it's, as a scientist, it's like we really handicapped ourselves with this group. Like 80-year-olds do not spontaneously put on two pounds of fat-free mass easily. So it's important to note those averages are group averages, and they're also consistent in every group. So men and women, young, middle-aged, and old, all saw those same improvements. We had, I think... A handful of people gained up to 10 to 15 pounds of fat-free mass by three months. We also had extraordinary case studies. We have one 80-year-old male subject who he was struggling to walk for more than a few minutes at a time on his daily walks. He just sent us wearable data, and now he's breaking into a jog regularly throughout his walk. Um, he also had... Wow. Uh, lumbar spine osteoporosis, which improved rapidly by three months. That's not trivial. Like an 80-year-old regaining the ability to jog and significantly resolving spinal osteoporosis, like that's really, really good. Our second big result was honestly unexpected and pretty dramatic. We saw uh, average epigenetic age reversals of about six to eight years for the entire group, but we saw reversals as big as 27 years in some of our older subjects. We double-checked this data when we received it because we were optimistic that it might slightly improve epigenetic age, but we did not foresee like 70 and 80-year-olds dipping down into an epigenetic age of in their 40s. But so what what does that mean exactly when you say when you're talking about epigenetic age? Yeah, that that's a great question and I want to be clear. If if I use a term like epigenetic age reversal, I do not mean to overstate our case. Like this is a blood test that estimates your biological age based on epigenetics. What that means is so you you have, you know, d every one of your 50 trillion cells contains a complete copy of your DNA. You have a bunch of different types of cells. So like an eye, a cell in your eyeball is a lot different than a skin cell, but they have the same DNA. The thing that makes them different is epigenetics. So epigenetics can be explained really simply. If you put a one carbon mark on DNA, that means don't turn on this gene. If you put a two carbon mark, it means turn on this gene. So basically as we get older, we the number of one carbon marks that say don't turn on this gene, they generally decrease. And instead of your cells performing like a symphony, every instrument plays at once and they perform like it's a cacophony. Um, so basically in 2013, um, a scientist invented something called the methylation clock. So a one carbon mark is called a meth, uh, a, it's a methylation mark. 
um, by analyzing the methylation patterns on a person's DNA, you can compare it to population data uh, and you can see, okay, this person's 40 years old chronologically, but they have the epigenetic markers uh, of an average 30-year-old uh, or a 50-year-old. So that, that's what we saw is a change in the methylation patterns consistent with an epigenetic age reversal of six to eight years on average and up to 27 years. There was wow. the other therapy as well. You were talking about this, this therapy for IQ. How far along is that? Do you have any results yet? We do not have results yet. We are, we're a small company and um, we're, we're pretty ambitious, but we kind of manage uh, everything by taking one solid step at a time. So, you know, we just completed this trial and wrote the paper that IQ boost longevity therapy is kind of what we're working on now. So it, it hasn't started yet or? That's correct. Yeah, it does not. Uh, we have not given it to ourselves. We haven't given it to anybody. Um, we, we're, it's, that's the stage of development that it's Are, at. My, I, maybe my question then, the, the deep, the deep, dark question that I have is, are you going to be able to create like super geniuses? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think many of us like, let's say, so we've heard anecdotally from credible scientists who have tried it in some form that they estimated, I think maybe like a, a 10 point boost in IQ. I don't think many of us are poised to be elevated to super genius level from like a 10 point IQ boost. Um, well, uh, you, I mean, you know, some of us are on the cusp. You, you guys probably are. <laughs> yeah. Right oh, on the edge. Struggling, you know? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, you know, with this statin, like I'm, I'm a high, I am, have a professional sports background and I put on 15 pounds of fat free mass in three months, but like, I still look, I look fit, but I'm like, I don't look like Ronnie Coleman, you know? Um, I, I, I think similarly, like we'd all benefit from a little cognitive boost, but I don't think this is going to create like a separate group of hyper intelligent, uh, people. Um, I think it's just kind of like, uh, what's the point? What's the point? If, if we can't have, you know, a, a, a race oh, of, of geniuses and a race of people living in sewers, it was all for nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious about the IQ stuff because um, maybe it's just the fact that we have seen athletes, um, you know, go through so many different things to enhance their body, uh, you know, doping, um, all kinds of different therapies. I mean, we have like, not, not just athletes, Brian Johnson, the, um, the CEO of Colonel, who's like drinking his son's blood so he can look like a, like fit lesbian. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> there's all right. Like this, there's, we, we live in a world where we, people talk about like the physical stuff a lot, like the, right. the, the body, but there's something that feels like so much more delicate about the mind. Yes. Um, and I don't know, like, I'm, I'm wondering if there's any fear of sort of like, you know, you, you turn one key on intelligence and you start, dealing with, um, you know, psychological side effects and, and right. mood disorders and, and things like that. Right. I, I'm going to start by defending Brian a little bit. Um, I have, <laughs> I've interacted with him professionally and I think, 
at some point, he, him and his team learned that controversial social media posts increase their audience. Um, sure. Anyway, uh, so credit where it's due. Brian spearheaded a lot. I, of- I wish it, I wish him luck on it. I wish him luck on his on his journey. You know. Um, fair, fair enough. I mean, I'm um, I'm I'm following I'm following the uh, penis age reduction stuff very closely. I want to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> how, so how much of your how much of your child's blood do you drink? Me, um, I, have, I don't yeah. have children of my own, so you know, <laughs> uh, I'll just leave it at that. But um, <laughs> no, I, yeah. Um, aside from uh, aside from the blood thing, um, I think so. It's actually funny that you mentioned this concern about cognition because that never occurred to me. Um, my buddy, who's like, he's a, he's like a jock, but he's also a smart, thoughtful guy. He had the same concern. He was like, some of the smartest people I know have difficulty socially. If I get this gene therapy, might I become less social? So of the small number of people I've talked to about this, a few now have like expressed this concern. I don't, you know, to me, these therapies like Falstatin and this next one are really like baby steps, like low hanging fruit that's just designed to make the safest case possible for gene therapy as preventative medicine. Um, again, it's, it's reversible and temporary. Mm-hmm. So like if you, you know, can't communicate with normal humans anymore. Um, like you can just <laughs> turn it off. But for me that like, I, I basically think of myself as like a professional brain athlete at this point, like, and my brain mm-hmm. is pretty sharply limited. Like, if I try to read scientific articles on a topic, like there's so many, it's such a challenge. It's such a challenge to synthesize that information. So I'm like really looking for reasonably safe cognitive boosts all the time. So for me, uh, that combined with the reversibility of this therapy makes it a really attractive, uh, option. Yeah. The, the reversibility really seems to be, um, like one of the most attractive, Jesse's Jesse's acting like he's got, you know, such a a wonderful full social life that he would lose. (laughs) Well, I, uh, I, you know, the first thing I thought of is there's a, um, a classic Simpsons episode where Homer gets a crayon removed from his brain and his, he, uh, and, and he becomes smarter and suddenly loses all his friends. And, um, you know, Lisa shows him a graph that, you know, as intelligence goes up, happiness goes straight down and he ends up putting the crayon right back in his brain by the end. Um, so it's nice, it's nice to know that if I, um, become too smart, too antisocial, then I, I can just shove the, the crayon right back up there. Yeah. That, that's how the reversibility works. We just put a crayon. <laughs> the highly you scientific. It, you dip it in plasmids and put it right up the nose. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the nose goes straight to the brain and the, the crayon just goes right in. <laughs> um, well, I, I also, we wanted to touch on something that I think was one of the original reasons we we thought about having you and, and on the show and discussing Mini Circle is you're, you guys are dealing with some interesting regulatory stuff. You know, we often talk about crypto, Web3, AI, and there's a big part of that discussion is just what is allowed where? How do you uh, move forward when there are a lot of parties asking different things from you, a lot of them government parties. Yep. And uh, Mini Circle has obviously had to, to deal with that. And you guys are now operating 
out of Honduras in a special economic zone in order to pursue this testing. Could you tell us a little bit about why you're there and, and what it's allowed and, and the journey to it? Yeah, definitely. I can tell you a little bit about that. So I'm, you know, my specialty in the company is as a, a scientist, our, our CEO and one of our two founders, Mac, you know, he's kind of a polymath and like, like a dreamer. He has a degree in physics, but he's read, he's been reading about economics and law since he was a teenager. Um, so I think this is really up his alley. But I mean, I think the, the broad strokes are that it's really time consuming, expensive, and difficult to successfully engage the FDA. Um, the FDA is designed to be slow moving and conservative because it's a safety oriented regulatory body. You know, arguably, we're accumulating knowledge about human health and specifically about aging um, extremely rapidly. And we might need to move a little faster we might need to change the way we optimize for a balance of safety and speed to like, you know, not be behind the curve. Like um, people want to have freedom to treat their health preventatively uh, to a reasonable degree. So basically, yeah, we, we partnered with a clinic in Honduras and we completed kind of a modified phase one human trial that established, you know, this therapy as potentially safe, and certainly effective. Um, and we did that in like a year for a reasonable cost. And our results are really good. The data is super good. You know, um, it was very, it was conducted ethically. Um, we've talked to preeminent scientists and they've basically said like, yeah, this looks great. So that's, that's the short version of what we did. And now uh, that you're there, is there any sort of... Um relationship with the the Honduran government that's that's ongoing or is this sort of they're like hey you're over there you're in you know your little sandbox playground do what you like try not to kill anybody make any mutants (laughs) if possible (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah no there's a very formal ongoing relationship I sat in on a hearing a few weeks ago and you know it was legit like it wasn't it wasn't a formality. Like they weren't just like, okay, yeah, here's a rubber stamp, go do whatever. Like we had to make our case and we've, I think we've been making our case for years. And so, yeah, there, there's an ongoing and, and real relationship with the Honduran government. I, the, the special economic zone is interesting because um, on the one hand, obviously it allows for this type of uh, cutting edge research, you know, among consenting adults who who understand the risks and and want to in, engage in pushing this type of research forward, right? It also does obviously have like let's say an optics problem, right? Of uh, you know Americans disappearing to a Latin American island to do their experiments. Let's um, yeah. <laughs> and so, I'm I'm please go ahead. When I when I went down there to, to receive therapy. I was like, this might be the last bad decision I ever get to make. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I had not seen the clinic. Like, I was like, I was pretty nervous. And I got down there and things were very professional. Um, but yeah, I hear you. Like, um, but, but please go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. Well, I guess I just, I kind of wanted to um, pivot from here into just sort of a larger, um, like, ethical discussion of this stuff. I, we, we touched on a little bit with, you know, some of this, like, 
athlete enhancements, but I do think it's uh, something that a lot of people have strong opinions about, like some people very strong aversions to. I, um, you know, I, when I was in grad school, um, I read, I took a class that was, you know, it was a literature class, but it was centered around transhumanism, like loosely trying to answer the question of, you know, where does being human begin and end and looking at a way that different philosophies and and religions and scientists have tried to answer that question at various points. And then also looking towards the future about, you know, if we continue to press forward um, with respect to, you know, specifically genetic engineering, artificial intelligence and, and nanotechnology, maybe like um, cyber, uh, cyber enhancements for people, you know, where does that boundary lie on the other end? Right. And, um, we, we read this book um, called Enough by Bill McKibben, right? And his book yeah. is, yeah. And his argument is basically like, we, we've gone far enough, right? And um, Thanks. I, I don't think that we've really, you, we've reached the point where we should just like say, okay, we're, we're, we're here. Yeah. But I am sympathetic to concerns that um, progress for progress's sake has some pretty unattended consequences and could change some really important things about what it means to be human. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I have a few thoughts about that. So, I mean, one, you know, I, we talked about this model of an exponential curve for like technological progress. I think humans, humans are in the infancy of tremendous knowledge. Like, again, we didn't know what DNA was till approximately 50 years ago. We've had electricity for like a hundred years. So I think we're just like getting into this kind of brave new world, uh, type of territory. Um, I think that, you know, people who are hardliners either way, I think are a little troubling for me. I mean, I think my, my DNA is my DNA. My body is my body. If I want to, to me, it's a very natural extension of evolution and the human story arc for me to try to improve that. Like certainly in safe ways at first, like, um, so, you know, this idea of like relinquishing progress, I think often comes with that, like a romanticization of our past relationship with nature. Like, I think that's Mm -hmm. pretty extreme. I think none of this exists in a vacuum, like these like super polished transhumanist visions. I like the aesthetics of some of them personally, but this doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's like environmental realities. There's, you know, economic realities, sociopolitical realities. Like we have to develop this stepwise. We have to be careful stewards and we have to acknowledge like, okay, let's say me and Mac and Walter and Brian Johnson are like really excited about like stuff that has weird optics, but you know, is logically sound. Like I feel like we should be free to pursue that. And we should also not try to force it on Bill McKibben. Um, but he should respect our right to try. I'm not trying. I haven't, I don't know Bill. McKibben. I'm trying, not trying to throw him You're in. You're coming in hot on Bill. Yeah. So yeah, I think just like, I think progress is kind of 
technological progress is kind of baked into the human story arc. I, I think being careful, like the solution is basically like the middle path. I think like be careful, move stepwise, um, but don't relinquish and don't blindly assume that techno- technological advancement will fix everything. And like, there won't be challenges that come with it. Um, yeah, that's pretty much my view on it. Can I, can I ask you to be an idealist and not a scientist for a second? And like, what's your, what's your sort of ideal end game here? My, my ideal end game, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, I, to me, the more freedom and creative control, uh, humans have while remaining in harmony with nature and, you know, living in like a just, uh, peaceful society, I think just kind of maximizing all those things is desirable. So I I would like to, I'd like to be free to explore earth. I'd like to be free to explore space. Um, I wouldn't want to force that on anybody. Similarly, the option of dying is always on the table. Like if you, if, if you elect to receive some gene therapy in the future that makes you live longer, you can always opt out. Like I personally, I think it would be really exciting to scientifically investigate the afterlife and maybe be able to like cross that boundary, you know, without forfeiting your current life. So, I mean, for me, the future would look like, you know, we don't create like some, uh, superhuman hyper elite class that moves off planet. And there's like, you know, uh, sorry to disappoint any, but like, there's not like a sewer race of like (laughs) human hybrids that are like do slave labor or something. Like it's not a zero sum game. Like, um, I think just a future of abundance. One thing I think about a lot is the Kardashev scale, um, which is a assessment of a civilizational scale, right? by how much energy they can harness. And let's say it goes up to like a five. I think humans are estimated to be like a a 0.7. Like we we're basically still babies. Like we can't even harness all the energy of our star, much less our galaxy or like multiple galaxies. Like, so yeah, I'm, I'm just excited about basically an abundant, just future. Um, that that's, that's what excites me about the future. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting and very optimistic as I, um, which I appreciate there. I sometimes, uh, do get overcome by, I guess, specifically, uh, AI terror more yeah. than, um, genetic <laughs> enhancement. Um, maybe genetic enhancement is the uh, defense against AI somehow we, we make ourselves, uh, well, you know, Elon, Elon seems to think that like him implanting Neuralink in people's brains is our best defense against AI overlords. Really? Yeah. That's what, I, that's what, are we not going to get hacked? I mean, who knows? But yeah, we, we need to be, <laughs> we, we apparently need to be enhancing our, our brains with um, Elon Musk code. Mm-hmm. That's what he believes. Do you, I mean, do you think that there's any like real reason to be concerned? I mean, what, it's interesting that the price point of your therapy is relatively speaking so low and likely will only be driven lower and that there are, you know, tiers of options available to people. Um, like that's, that's really exciting. And I think answers some of like the, the equity questions, right? Like I, but do you take any concerns about like a Gattaca type future, like seriously, you know, where, 
you know, there are people who can afford to, to enhance themselves and those who can't. Of course I do. I think, um, of course I have those concerns. My experience interacting with people kind of very close to the top of this pyramid in terms of bio enhancement has been surprisingly reassuring. And like, like Brian Johnson is a good example. Like he's spe- he's spearheading something and like making basically all of his data and his protocols publicly available. Like he's not mm-hmm. giving everyone, but, um, you know, I think it's a concern. I don't see a ton of evidence supporting that, like that Gattaca style plan is underway. I see more evidence consistent with like, you know, high net worth individuals are more likely to have early access, but you know, and I think in the future it's, I would bet it's more like, you know, everybody has like a smartphone or so many people have smartphones now. Like it's not, Mm-hmm. In the eighties, you had like a brick cell phone that only like rich people had. And now smartphones are ubiquitous. I, I suspect it will probably be more like that, but it's always important to not get overconfident about that. stuff. I mean, the risks are real. They just, uh, but they, they, they don't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be excessively headed that way in, from what well, I've seen. Mapping, mapping the human genome is a, is a great sort of example of that, right? Like, uh, I yeah. mean, just much, much closer. It's, it's a, you know, genetic, uh, I, I mean, it, we're, we're in the field of genes again. And what was, what did it cost in the nineties when they started the project? It was, you know, like hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars or something like that. And now it's oh, down yeah, to, yeah. and now it's yeah, down I, to I, like, I can get my 23 and me done for like, yeah, you know, forget $65. Yeah. yeah, so I literally twenty three and Me is going to look at a few small sections of your DNA. I literally right. just purchased a whole genome sequencing kit for myself for four hundred bucks. Now, this is a great example of like it's not like malice or conspiracy; it's just lack of awareness. Like most people don't understand what a whole genome sequencing is. They don't understand that it's a few hundred bucks. People, this is. Uh, I'm going to, this is a little bit tangential, but like, you know, a lot of people, one of the first things I'll tell you about themselves is like their astrological chart. And I'm like, (laughs) do you realize you can get your entire genome sequenced? Like this is an unprecedented level of self-knowledge and it's like a few hundred bucks. Like it's widely available. It's just not, it's just not widely known. But, uh, you, you won't be able to, uh, do you think you can know as much from your getting your whole genome sequenced as what time it was when you were born? I mean, like there's, you yeah, know, I'm, a, your... I'm a Gemini and that, you know, that's very telling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little cancer crab, you know, hard on the outside, soft on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all you need. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, as a, as a scientist, I try to stay open-minded. <laughs> Astrology is one of the things I'm most skeptical about and have been least convinced about, but I don't mean to pick on it. It's just like, no, please do. You know, you're, that, you're just waiting for the evidence. When someone walks in there with it, you'll, you'll take it seriously. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just kind of like the idea that that is the most informative thing about you. And like, you can literally know your whole genome now for a low price and people just aren't aware of that or not interested. So no rich person is being like, don't let them have their genetic data. It's just people don't know and don't really care that much. Mm-hmm. And well, um, you, so you just got your whole genome sequence. This is separate from mini circle. It sounds yep. like what can you 
you know, Ryan Rossner, the individual do with that information? Yeah, I think, you know, the, this, the company I bought it through offers some kind of analysis package, but I, I'm a big proponent of like collect information first and figure out what to do with it next. Like if I don't have that information, I can't do anything with it. Once mm-hmm. I have it, I have a lifetime of looking into it to gain actionable insights. So I'll start with the package they offer and then I'll just kind of play around over the years and see what I can learn. Yeah, we're big fans of owning your own data. That's kind of a, a theme as well, you know. Right. Backing up here, um, I realize we're, we're getting towards the end of this conversation and looking through my notes, there are still a few questions I had about, you know, how this actually works on a, on a sort of molecular biological level. So you said you're doing, um, you know, plasmid therapies, uh, but what does that actually mean? What is happening inside your cells? Yeah. So we make a small piece of DNA in a lab. The DNA contains the gene encoding false statin protein. And then it contains some other stuff that basically like, you know, prevents it from getting kicked out of your cells and, like the reversibility switch is, is built in there. The key thing is that we inject it subcutaneously into your belly fat, um, usually kind of off to the side into your love handle. It only transfects, which is to say the DNA only goes into a small number of cells locally in your belly fat. So you have a small number of belly fat cells in one site The plasmid goes into the nucleus of those cells. It doesn't integrate into your DNA. It sits next to your pre-existing DNA and just gets kind of, you know, processed for a year, um, just like your DNA does permanently. Um, So it's processed for a year in this small number of cells. And what it creates is like a little export factory. So this folostatin protein is naturally made in your cells. It's secreted to the cell surface it's cleaved of its secretory tag and it's sent into circulation. So we harness that secretory pathway to create a little folostatin factory in a few belly fat cells that makes a very high level of folostatin and exports it into your bloodstream so you get systemic benefits. This gives us three uh, layers of reversibility. One is it only lasts a year to begin with. Two is there's a kill switch that we can exploit built into the DNA. Three, worst case scenario, we can just cut out that little bit of belly fat and just physically remove hmm. it. So, so that's that's how it works. And the, the, the important thing is not to badmouth viral vector gene therapy because it's these approaches are really complementary. But viral vector gene therapy, the idea is that it goes and it integrates into your DNA permanently, probably in a larger number of cells. So the, the, that's that's how our system works, and that's how it contrasts with viral vector delivery. And and maybe let's let's talk about viral vector for a sec because we haven't touched on it much. Um, are is viral vector being used for the same type of um, like elective preventative enhancements that MiniCircle is working on? Because I feel like mostly what I what I've heard about gene therapy is sort of targeted for individual conditions. Um, that people suffer from and sort of like working to mitigate those symptoms? Yeah, so it absolutely is. I mean, um, 
FDA approved gene therapies available in the U.S. are typically for like rare diseases. Um, but there's absolutely medical tourism where high net worth individuals can't, or anyone who, who can afford it and wants to, can travel outside the U.S. and get viral vector gene therapy aimed at preventative longevity medicine. Um, that totally exists. You know, I've heard from somebody who went and did it that it was, you know, low six figures. So maybe one to $500,000. Um, so yeah, it's available and that's kind of where the, the, the balance lies. So you are, you know, working on these treatments that you've discussed longevity and then, um, intelligence down the line. Is there plans to focus or look at not, um, not as much preventative medicine, but let's say like specific targeted therapies for individual conditions or even therapies that are, you know, targeted to specific individuals based on their particular genetic makeup? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think right now we're not trying to be everything to everyone. Um, but it's worth noting this fall statin gene therapy, there are specific conditions like muscular dystrophy um, some rheumatoid conditions, um, maybe ALS that those patients might benefit from this very specifically for their condition. And we're absolutely engaging those communities through forums and working to make this available to them to a reasonable degree. As far as highly personalized gene therapy based on an individual's genome, that's a great idea. I mean, we have not discussed that internally, but it's a great idea. And I think, you know, the, what we're really doing here is just taking first steps. Like it's this, mm -hmm. I would argue that this mode of therapy, gene therapy is so underdeveloped relative to its potential. We're just taking first steps, trying to take them responsibly, but the future is wide open. Well, when you start doing uh, individual tailored therapies, I'll, I'll take my royalty check in the mail. It's fine. That's, that's only, make it a, that's only visual reason. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this uh, one, one last thing that I want to ask is, um, what if, so besides flying to Honduras and, uh, paying 25,000 right now, what can, um, a relatively, I'm not a tycoon yet. So I sure. want to know, uh, I don't, I want to know like, what are your, you know, let's say your top three or four things that I should be doing in my life to improve my health and longevity. Like what, what do you think from, from having intimately read the literature actually works and can be done for, you know, low hundreds of dollars, let's say. Absolutely. That's a great question. So most of the stuff is free. So the kind of the foundation, it's like a pyramid. So the foundation of your pyramid is really going to be pretty common sense stuff that's just lifestyle optimization. So that's going to be sleep, exercise, don't smoke, don't drink, you know, don't get excited, all, all the good stuff. Um, that's kind of like level one. That sounds like all the bad stuff. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. You, you live forever, but was it worth it? Yeah. Right, right, yeah. I mean, um, the, the next thing I would say would be start collecting data on yourself aggressively. So like get blood work, get your genome sequenced, get an epigenetic test, go get a DEXA scan, get a VO2 max test, like get your numbers. 
Um, because if until you're making data-driven decisions, you're kind of just guessing and going by feel. And a lot of people are basically like, I was like this, like, like I look in the mirror and like, I have big muscles. I'm like, yeah, I'm fit. And then I get a VO2 max test and it's like, wow, I'm, I'm not as fit as I thought I was. Um, so aggressively collect data. And then the third thing would be with these like advanced therapies, you know, get informed and consider adopting them according to your personal risk calculation. Some of the best ones, in my opinion, are rapamycin, metformin. There's an over-the-counter supplement, Facetin, F-I-S-E-T-I-N, that's a senolytic. Um, those are kind of like pills that you can take. And then there's advanced stuff like you know stem cells, gene therapy. Just So those three things, do the common sense stuff, collect data, and get informed about and consider the advanced therapies that that's kind of the name of the game right now, in my opinion. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, that's great. I'm, I'm now as we speak, injecting myself with everything you've just mentioned and <laughs> I look forward to, uh, living to be one, 1 billion years old with you. And we'll, uh, we'll all, we'll all hang out for the next one, but not with the sewer so, people. No. Yeah. They don't get to come. <laughs> all right, Ryan, this has been, uh, an absolutely, fascinating conversation um i i can't wait for this one to to get out there and uh let's just say thank you so much for uh for joining us yeah th that was a real pleasure you guys made this super easy um thanks to y'all too this was awesome thanks yeah great all right to uh the rest of our listeners um you know get out there measure your 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 genes get get tested get a blood and, board uh, can yeah, yeah. And uh, consider um, joining us in the future. And uh, until next time, this has been the Network Age. Thank you for listening. For more Network Age content, you can find us on Twitter at Network Age Pod. We've also got a beautiful new presence online, which you can find at ookbar.network forward slash age. Also, find us on Apple or Spotify. Leave us a good review. And we may even read it on air. Until next time, this has been the Network Age.